Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, writer Eilish Nguivna on her Penn Lifetime Achievement Award. Writer Eilish Nguivne is a highly respected figure in modern Irish writing, with a lengthy and impressive list of novels, short story collections, plays, poems, literary criticism and academic writing as a folklorist. She occupies a particular space as someone who writes and publishes in both English and Irish, and the richness of her achievement is now being acknowledged and celebrated by her peers with an Irish Pen Award for Lifetime Achievement, an award given in the past to writers such as Edna O'Brien, John McGahan, Frank McGuinness and Seamus Heaney. I met Eilish Nguivna at her home in Dublin, and we spoke about her work as a writer and what the Pen Award means to her. But first she told me about one of her stories, which casts a sardonic eye on the Irish art scene. Yes, five or six years ago, perhaps I wrote a story called Literary Lunch, which sent up the arts scene, something that I do with a certain amount of regularity. That was about the difference between the lucky people and the unlucky people in the literary world. And some people are very successful. Other people are somewhere in the middle and some people just have no luck at all. So Francie Briody, one of the characters in the story, is the one who's on the wrong side of the river. And Pamela, uh, who's a successful woman writer, is on the other side. So it's an account of a committee meeting by some sort of arts board. It, it completely I- invented, really. Uh, lots of people think it's supposed to be about the Arts Council or something. Perhaps I hint at that, but I'd never uh, been on the Arts Council, so it wasn't based on such a thing. Anyway, that story ends with Francie shooting the chairperson of the board, Alan, because he hasn't got a prize or a bursary or whatever it was he was hoping to get. And then I was asked, invited to contribute a story to the Irish Times series of short stories related to the recession. So I thought I'd write a sequel to it. So my first story is the literary scene during the boom and my second story is the literary scene uh, during the bust. Would you read an extract from that story for us uh, from City of Literature? It's one of life's many ironies that night is always darkest before the dawn. His murder of the chairman of the board for artists, money, etc. had brought Francie Briody the celebrity he'd craved as he wrote long experimental novels at his kitchen table and collected rejection slips by the hundred. He spent the first six years of the recession locked up in prison. This was not a bad place to be in the era of austerity. According to his cellmate Marty, a drug baron implicated in the murder of more men than he could count. Boom or bust, it's all the same behind bars. The diet hadn't changed or the condition of the cells. Neither of them had ever been good. The only difference, Marty asserted, was that there were fewer classes due to cutbacks in funding. It used to be brutal. You'd be up half the night writing plays and memoirs and God knows what. We had one young one who was mad for sonnets. Sonnets, fucking sonnets. She couldn't get enough of them. That, Marty asserted, was the worst. He thought for a minute as he rummaged in his mattress for one of his mobile phones. Apart from the Sistinas. Are you into Sistinas yourself? Francie assured him that he was not. I am a writer of prose, he said quietly. Oh good, said Marty. Thanks to the lack of undue pressure from teachers of creative writing and art, Francie had plenty of time to do his own thing, namely write long experimental novels. Within a week of his arrival behind bars, Marty, whose ingenuity was indefatigable and contacts in and outside the walls innumerable, procured him a nice little laptop. All he asked in return was that his new pal would augment his supplies of his favourite substance, by getting all his visitors to bring some in whenever they dropped by. Francie's mother, sister, his friend Pam and five of his former girlfriends visited with some regularity. He was rather handsome. 
Edith Nagudna reading from her short story City of Literature. Edith, uh, was the, those Celtic Tiger years, those those mad years of boom, then bust, you know, y- you have scrutinised it as a writer to a certain extent, satirised it, played around with with all the, the excesses and the, the this human frailties and foibles that emerged through all of that. Was it for you a great source of, of material as an observer as well as a writer? I've used it in stories like that one I just read from City of Literature where I'm talking about the recession and its companion piece A Literary Lunch which is set in the world of excesses and that um, I'm writing fairly directly about it. I did that also in my novel Fox Follows Scarecrow where I also send up the literary scene. Usually I think it's more as a backdrop to stories than as um, the, the material itself. Uh, I do remember uh, during the the boom, uh, there was a critique that the literary writers in particular were not writing it. And I always felt that that was a little bit unfair because um, it seemed to me that boom or bust or whatever are really just settings and that you can't write about this as such. It's the time in which the characters are living. And um, I think as a writer of fiction that what you are always writing about is individual people. Where they happen to be will, of course, impinge on how they behave and what their lives are like and what they do. But it is about them primarily. In both this story and in Fox Swallow's Scarecrow, we, we find real people as well, or references to them. You know, Michael D. Higgins as President Heaney features in, in the novel. You mix uh, the, the kind of the real, very much the real city or, or countryside and some of the people with, with imagination. Sometimes perhaps a, a daring thing to do. And I, I think maybe some people were, didn't quite understand what you were trying to do, especially in the novel. Satirising a great deal, but also had a very, very serious core to it. Well, comic writing always gets a mixed reception, actually, because some people don't get it and um, other people don't like it and so on and so forth. I think that what I did where I insert real people as very minor characters just kind of passing by, really, um, with fictional characters is really intrinsic to what fiction is and how the imagination works, actually. And that it's almost impossible to do anything else, even if you're writing what you think is straight autobiography or whatever, there is going to be an imposed narrative. I love an image which I've come across recently of something called the Lion Man, which is a little sculpture. I think it's 30,000 years old, which was found in a cave in Germany in 1939. Not a good year for an archaeologist to find something (laughs) good in Germany. But anyway, not very much happened about it until about 20 years later, whatever. But anyway, this piece of sculpture is the body of a man with a lion's head. And I think that's a fantastic image for what art is or fiction. It's two things that actually exist, but they are combined in a way that does not exist (laughs) But the artist was able to make that leap of imagination. So I think in a way, when I write, I'm drawing on, as writers of novels usually are, I mean, it's observed experience. So a novel like Foxwallow Scarecrow, which is um, a satire of the literary scene in Dublin and of the excesses of the boom it's it takes as its template uh, Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina, so it it's closely enough related in structure and that to that novel. Writers and, and the whole world of writing often features in, in the work. Is that writing what's familiar to you? Uh, or is it the fascination with that strange world where things are created out of nothing and where aside from the launches and things that can sometimes become almost self-satirising, there's a, something deeply interesting happening and something that is is often in a way quite mysterious. Well, in terms of my writing, uh, I have written, I think, more 
in recent years about the world of writers and writing. And it indeed it is um, partly that it's the world with which I'm familiar. Um, for instance, for Foxwallow, Scarecrow, the idea I had then was, in fact, to try and write something about Dublin at that particular period. And I, I took the Tolstoy template, and which is about, is kind of satire of, to some extent of high society in Moscow and St. Petersburg at the um, end of the 19th century. I really realised I have no access to high society in Dublin. I, in fact, I always wonder, does it really exist? But um, it does exist to some extent. But anyway, it's not, not the kind of society with which I'm familiar. So so I took the writing world instead. But yeah, of course, I'm interested. And I suppose more and more recently in the process of creativity, what it is, why you become a writer a question I still can't answer, actually. There's that aspect as well as a kind of philosophical exploration of that as well as a description of what's going on and how people interact and what happens and so on and so forth. But in my early writing, I, I didn't write about that at all. Eilish, can we go back to the very early days as a girl growing up in Dublin? Um, were you one of those children who fell in love with words early on and with books and, and somehow knew that this would be a big part of your life? Uh, I was one of those children, not uncommon kind of child. I come across people who tell me that it was the same for them quite frequently. Yeah, I loved stories and I loved being read aloud to by my mother. I was very anxious to become a reader myself, so I didn't have to depend on somebody else to read to me. I I was completely in love with fiction. I was in love with the world of story from when I was a very small child, but certainly seven or eight or nine. If if you read all the time, which which I did, I, I used to go to the public library in Rathmines nearly every day, actually, you learn how to write from what you're reading without knowing it. And I could do a spin on the boring composition subjects that we got (laughs) in school sometimes. That was a little bit different, which would win praise from the teacher. For instance, I remember a a breakthrough moment when I was about nine or ten was when we got this essay that you used to get all the time nearly every year from different teachers, you know, a train journey. I wrote about a train journey from Lausanne to Paris and the teacher, you know, who was probably mainly reading about the train from Dublin to Tralee or liked it and said, um, when did you make this journey? And of course, I hardly ever been on a train at all, actually, and I'd never been anywhere. But I had based it on my reading of the Heidi books. (laughs) And I realised, you know, I can do this. I can write about things I never did. And people will pat me on the back for that and so on. And I began to answer the question, the other question that children are used to be asked anyway was what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say a writer. And I just stayed with that. Your father uh, was a native speaker of Irish. Uh, where was he from originally? My father was from uh, Glenvar in County Donegal, a small isolated Gaeltacht up on the Fannet Peninsula spoke Irish to us to a certain extent but we didn't speak Irish at home because my mother uh, didn't speak Irish and uh, my father of course was out working nearly all the time. He was a carpenter and in those days he worked six days a week. Sometimes he even had to work away from home I think in the 50s. I remember he used to go off and come back at weekends and that sort of thing when I was a very small child. So I'd say I heard Irish from the moment I was born. uh, Strange Donegal Irish knew my prayers um, in Irish and and that. But I really became an Irish speaker in school. I went to school Rita. My my mother, although she didn't speak Irish, was very much kind of far Irish. (laughs) And um, I have a lovely letter that she wrote to the principal of Skullrida, you know, trying to get us into the school, because even then, I suppose it seemed to be hard to get into the Gale schools. And there were only one or two in Dublin. She used uh, all her powers of persuasion, including that some of the Gavin Duffy's used to stay in my father's house 
in Donegal, you know, going to the Gaeltag to learn Irish. And um, Louise Gavin Duffy was the founder of Skullrida. And um, nobody in Skullrida spoke Donegal Irish. I never met anyone in schools in Dublin with Donegal Irish. It was all Kerry or Connemara. Or, or we, we were speaking Renala Irish, really. Did that early duality of, of, of language help to shape the way you thought about words and the understanding of life through language and the different ways we can enter enter the world through through different languages? It's, it, it is complicated, isn't it? I mean, Skullrida was uh, very strong on Gaelic at that time and we, we certainly spoke Irish all the time in school. But I think as soon as we got outside of school and walked home, we switched to English. I mean, we had absolutely no difficulty switching all the time between one language and the other. So those kind of questions about perceiving the world in a different way because you're using a different language, I, I think it would be overstating it in certainly in my case to say that it, uh, that I had two kind of different ways of perceiving the world through through my different through my two languages. You did have two names. I am a woman with many names. And, you know, this is such a peculiar situation, but one we're familiar with in this country. I was registered at birth under the name Elizabeth Anne Dini. My parents immediately started calling me Ailish. I was Ailish Dini. I went to school and then I was called Ailish Nigwivna. And then I changed my name by some sort of process you had to go through when I went to college to Elgin because I had got used to being called by that name. Then when I started publishing my first couple of stories, I used a pseudonym, Elizabeth Jean, and later I switched back to Elgin It's a very difficult name. It's very problematic. But publishers have mostly been quite tolerant of it. When I began writing books for children, the first couple of ones I wrote with Eilish Nigwivna and then I decided to try a different name and took the pseudonym Elizabeth O'Hara just to see if that would be more marketable and it turned out that it was. There's a piece here I wrote about being Irish for an essay in a collection of ethnographical essays on various European peoples. The collection is called The Europeans. This section is called Christmas in Connemara. On the way to a Christmas party in Connemara on the west coast of Ireland, the opposite side from Dublin where I live, I daydream about the subject of national identity. What does it mean to be Irish? The bus trundles along collecting passengers here and there on the dark country road. Most but by no means all are young. The average age is 25. Many people smoke, some drink. The bus is full of noise, people talking and laughing, occasionally bursting into a snatch of song. Are these people typically Irish? I don't know. What I do know is that among them I feel warm and at home. The reason is not the high spirits of the company. I like the energy and cheerfulness, but most of these people are 20 years my junior. I don't know them and probably wouldn't have a lot in common even if I were their age. When I was 20, I was reflective, quiet, aloof and serious, more like the stereotypical Swede than the typical young Irish person. But these people speak Irish mostly, or a mixture of English and Irish, and that's part of the reason I feel at home. I have some atavistic belief that people who speak Irish are my friends on my side, even if I've encountered several who are not. Even though my Irish is different from theirs, a Dublin dialect which sounds foreign and even silly to their ears, there's always a bond of some kind between Irish speakers in Ireland. But the main reason for my sense of safety and well-being is that almost everyone on this bus has an Irish name, just like mine. Sheila Ní Cuevani and Maura Ní Connell and so on. When I say Eilish Ní Gwivna is my name, they don't look startled or impatient. This is a very unusual experience for me. Irish is the first national language of Ireland, but only a tiny proportion of people actually speak it fluently. 
Eilish, one of the people who did speak the language fluently was your late husband, Boo Alnquist, uh, yes. professor of folklore, eminent scholar here for so many decades. With him, I think you, you shared a great love of Ireland, of the, the language, and also of, of County Kerry, where I think you spent a, a lot of time. Tell me a little bit about those landscapes of Kerry in particular and, and the culture in which you were, you've been immersed for, for so long. Boo introduced me to the culture of his own country and the language of his own country, Sweden and Swedish, and also to Kerry. Donegal had been my hinterland, my favourite place, my other place, my West of Ireland place, until I married Boo in, in 1982 and began to spend the summers and other times of the year there as well with him. That was a stunning experience. I had been used to the rather declining and subdued Brackgeilthacht of Glenvar in Donegal. And suddenly I was in Dunkreen, full of energy and pride and insistence that this was the most important place in the world, practically, which is what Boo thought, you know, possibly correctly. But the huge um, self-confidence, as it seemed to me, of Dunkreen was a wonderful revelation to me. And of course, I was hugely enriched by my relationship to Boo, my marriage to this great man. I encountered Boo in the first place because I was his student studying Irish folklore in University College Dublin and the world of the folk tale is the one that brought us together really. The folk tale and medieval English literature, I mean I came back to Irish via Middle English, probably an unusual way to do it but that's how it worked out for me. Folk narrative or traditional tales were very much part of my life with Boo what we understood we were both passionately interested in this and that has fed into my creative writing as well as of course my scholarly writing and so on has been totally part of my life and it was also part of the texture of Dun Queen where we spent time enjoying ourselves and during the summers but Boo was always collecting stories from Bob Ferreter and various other people during my time uh, down there yeah, my life in Kerry, and I still go, was very much intertwined with literature and folklore and with creative imagination as expressed not through English and not in the pages of books necessarily, but um, through through the oral tradition. What had drawn you to folklore in the first instance? Because you studied pure English, you immersed yourself in Irish again, as you said, kind of coming to Irish through Middle English and then the, that layer of, of folklore that, as you say, has been so important to your work. What drew you to it? I knew nothing about folklore as a, a young student deciding to study English in UCD. I've been a rather academic sort of writer in that I decided that it would be important for me to find out everything I could about literature in order to be a writer. This, of course, It's true, but it's not necessary to go to university and take a degree in Old English in order to do that. And sometimes I envy writers. I I was reading Henning Mankell, one of my favourite writers of Scandinavian noir, has written some great essays, but he writes about in one essay how during a Latin class he decided he was going to walk out of school and never come back again. And he did that. And the reason was that he thought, I'm going to be a writer. None of this is really useful to me. So um, he went off to Paris and worked and kind of gathered experience and so on and so forth. But I, I made quite a different decision, which was to go off and get a degree and read everything that had ever been written and become very knowledgeable. And um, I thought... The roots of literature were in Old English so that um, if I went back to Beowulf, I'd be getting where everything started. But then I found out just because there was a course on the folktale and medieval literature offered by Boo Almquist, who had just come to UCD. Beowulf wasn't the start of things by any means or the Thorn or anything like that, but that they went back thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the oral tradition and that all this fantastic treasure trove of story was right there in the archive of the then Department of Irish Folklore and now the National Folklore Collection out there at the back of UCD. That was a huge 
revelation and moment of illumination and discovery for me, you know, in the middle of my second year in college. If, you know, if I thought of folklore, it was in the usual way, leprechauns and the banshee and stuff, the way that annoys us all very much as folklorists. I, d- I just didn't know about the riches of the folk tale and how it connected to literature. So that that's how I discovered it. And I became absolutely immersed in that world and fascinated by it to the extent, of course, that it sidelined me from my writing. There's always that bit of tension in in my life. I was going to say intellectual life, but I don't really make these distinctions between, you know, my life as I go around the place making cups of tea and my intellectual life. It's all one thing, really. But um, I enjoy scholarship. I enjoy exploring that. I enjoy writing it. There's a lot I would have liked to do in the area of folklore scholarship, but at, at a certain stage, I, I kind of turned back to the creative writing. But um, it has fed on the folklore and it has been part of what I do. In the recent book, Folklore and Modern Irish Writing, you have a fascinating essay on how some contemporary writers like Roddy Doyle, for example, draw on legends and, and folk tales for some of their work. And you give the title Hardcore Storytelling, which comes from one of Roddy's stories. And But you also make the point, I was really interested in this, that the, the folk tale almost contains all the seeds of, of narrative and structure and, and storytelling that we may use in whatever we do now. This is my belief that the basic structure of the novel is right there in the folktale, in the fairy tale. And and many of the themes of the novel, particularly of the traditional novel, are right there in the folktale as well. And, And that everything about narrative has been there for a very, very long time. We're constantly renewing the skin we push, the flesh we put on the bones, but we tend to use the same structures that have been there forever. So we talk about the folk tales or the fairy stories as, you know, something for children and something that is gone and is of no relevance to anything to do with high literature or contemporary literature. They're simply wrong. <laughs> the basis of uh, literature is is in these stories. Yeah, and I think I analysed that to some extent in the essay that you're referring to, um, which looks at how con- some contemporary Irish writers have used either the structures of tales consciously or unconsciously and and there are other aspects of them that are used as well and that are increasingly valued I think by writers the imagery and the motifs of the stories um, are also you know you can still use them You mentioned Henning Mankell uh, as as a writer whose work you enjoy and and admire and of course you've written thrillers Sister Caravaggio uh, with with others uh, in English and in Irish as well Is, is the thriller something you you enjoy? I've got very fond of thrillers or creamy novels over the past number of years. The Scandinavian noir, Henning Mankell and Hogan Nesser and Joe Nesbo and people like that. I read them in Swedish and I advise people to read thrillers in a foreign language because I if, if you, you know, you're French or you're German or whatever, when you have, in my case, Swedish and Danish. And I realised that I loved reading Henning Mankell's novels because they are very good. But I also realised they have quite a limited vocabulary. So if you're reading them in foreign language, they're not as difficult as reading Strindberg or a great classical work or whatever, which means that you do read them to the end. And Henning Mankell was my inspiration, therefore, when somebody asked me if I would consider writing a novel, Askelga, which Kushlifa Kielnikfodin and Sean Ogokarni did several years ago. And I thought, I like reading criminal novels in Swedish so it might be a good idea if I'm writing in Irish to write a detective novel, something I'd never done before in any language. It's more of a page turner and so that people will keep reading it to the end, which they may not do with something more literary. But I I do like the genre very much and possibly would like to do a little more in it. I did a sequel to that novel, uh, Dúna Narragad. And um, yes, as you say, I participated in the group novel uh, Sister Carvaggio, which came out just before Christmas. Writing in in a number of languages, I presume 
as well in enriches almost the the, the palette of possibilities for you. I, I've I've always been kind of puzzled by the fact that I didn't consider writing in Irish until relatively late, even though I went to the Gale schools and wrote my Leaving Cert all through Irish and all the rest of it. But my first writing in Irish occurred when Arkin Dehija asked me to consider workshopping some of my stories and converting them with the aid of troupe of actors and director and so on into a play. And my play, Dunaman Trihina, was the result of that. And that worked very well. It was a fantastic experience. And I realised, gosh, yeah, I, I can write in Irish. And I was very warmed. The play was a hit, actually. Um, but I was particularly encouraged by the kind of welcome I felt I was getting from the audience of uh, Irish language speakers, the Irish language community. It gave me confidence. And so I went on to write um, another play and subsequently a novel, Askelga, Dunveru Sedangan, my first detective novel. I, I write a different kind of fiction, usually in Irish, the genre fiction, you might say, the detective novels, and my next one will be a novel for young adults. So I am very interested in this thing of voice. As a writer, you can adopt a voice like kind of ventriloquist you know I'm writing in the voice of a 10 year old boy or I'm writing in the voice of an 80 year old man or somebody who is not me at all or you write in your own voice and I mostly write in my own voice anyway and my feeling about it is that my own voice is pretty much the same whether it's in Irish or English I'm not sure if it's like that for everybody and I'm not sure if that's how it's received by other people. But often when I read a bit of my own writing, Askelga, aloud, I think, gosh, it's the same sardonic, ironic, <laughs> uh, even though my vocabulary is more limited, my material is different. I kind of feel that the personal, what we call the voice, the style, the steel salon, is so intrinsic to your character as a person that language isn't really a barrier to it. It's almost like you're speaking a voice. And I'm the sort of person, whether I'm speaking Irish or Swedish or broken French or whatever, um, I'll always speak it with my South Dublin accent. I, I, I can't even get an accent. So maybe it's different for other people. But certainly I feel my personal voice, whatever it is, comes right through just the same, no matter what the language is. You're, you're also a regular critic and, and, and you still engage at times in scholarly writing, like the, the, the essay we referred to earlier. Is criticism an important part of your, your writing life? Reading is an important part of my writing life. The criticism I would see as simply... An, an activity that is associated with reading and I enjoy writing the reviews and so on but I'd be reading and reviewing personally anyway. Every writer has to be a reader in my opinion. There is a very close relationship between the two activities. For me simply as a person it's it's like breathing almost to, to read constantly. The great works, the great classics. That's so nurturing, so edifying. And I also like to keep up with the new work that's coming out and I have my favourite writers and so on who um, mean a huge amount to me. Yeah, you As a writer, you read for pleasure, you read to see how other people are doing it. And there is an interaction that writers are reluctant to acknowledge. As a folklore scholar, one of the things that I did is study the dissemination of tales and how one story is told by many, many different people, changed as it goes through the process from place to place and from teller to teller. Every version of a particular story, let's say the one I did from my PhD on with his whole heart, a story about a, a curse, the devil, somebody who's cursed to the devil. Um, every storyteller and the hundreds of them who tell that story 
does something individual with it and changes it. Now, writers in the literary tradition are supposed to tell a completely new story each time. And if they don't, they are accused of plagiarism. And and of course, there is more than taking a story and retelling it in your own words involved when you're writing a book or a short story or whatever. But I, I can now see chains of transmission sometimes where you can see ideas coming from writer to writer and so on. And that's that's going on there as well to a certain extent so that there is a sort of a literary chain just as there is a folktale chain do you find yourself at times rewriting stories or going back over material or drawing on something you've written before? Maybe, for example, written in Irish and you you find that a new form of it almost emerges later in English. So that it, I mean, a lot of writers talk about this, you know, the idea of the, the anxiety of influence. And yet we're all influenced by and inspired by, by other writers and and maybe at times need to reshape work in the light of, of new work that is made. There are certainly uh, a number of examples in my own of where I have used the same material in more than one form and, in fact, sometimes in the two languages. For instance, my novel, The Dancers Dancing, is, you know, it's about a group of girls who go to an Irish college in Donegal and the period is the month of the Irish College in that um, place and what happens there. And that actually was originally a short story in my very first collection, Blood and Water. In fact, it was the title story, Blood and Water. So several years after I wrote the story, I expanded it into a novel. And then I wrote an Irish novel, Colleen Bioga Glown Them Law, about girls who go to an Irish college in Cork. It's a different sort of story, but it's certainly drawing on the same uh, my own experience of going to various colossed salary as a as a child and as a teenager and what have you, but one work has led to the other in those uh, within my own work. Has your own writing changed a great deal uh, over the years? You know, from the first story, Green Fuse, which I think David Marcus published uh, in the Irish Press, and when you look back now, do you do you feel that? I suppose your awareness of of the craft of writing as well has developed significantly over those years. Yes, I think the answer is yes. Um, I started off writing short stories, one or two a year in a very spontaneous sort of way. I think I did have a knack for the epiphanic short story, even though I wasn't the probably even the word epiphany was unknown to me in that context and I knew nothing formally about the craft of writing but I think I had absorbed the technique of short story writing from my reading and specifically actually from something to which I would like to give credit which is Exploring English Part 1, Gus Martin's anthology of short stories, which I read in school for the intercert. That was such a fantastic collection of stories by Frank O'Connor, Mary Lavin, Catherine Mansfield, um, Saki and so on and so forth, some of which made a profound impression on me and did very close reading of thanks to his anthology. And I must say thanks to a great teacher I had at that particular juncture in my life. They're very poetic and I do think short story writers are that you have a kind of poetic sensibility to write a good short story. You know, they're layered, they're metaphorical. And so I think it was pretty good at that side of thing. But I wasn't very good at narrative or plot or anything. So as time went on, consciously found out how to spin a story. And the way I found out was by um, modelling my the structures of my stories on other short stories which had very good narrative surfaces and specifically via the work of Alice Munro who had a huge influence on me and which taught me really how to write a story and Blood and Water was the breakthrough story that that was that was a sort of turning point for me in terms of craft when I was a, a, a youngish writer. You've talked about Alice Munro's wisdom 
quiet serenity, the muted palette of, of, of her work. Uh, what is it in that strange kind of quiet style that particularly takes you? Her stories, on, they're understated in terms of language, particularly as she gets older. She didn't always write like that. As a young writer, Alice Monroe, in her first collection, Dance with the Happy Shades, and that writes more flamboyantly. And I think that is something that as a young writer, you're almost obliged to do. You have to show show your paces and let people know that, yeah, you are capable of the high style. And then she, she gets more and more unshow offy really, as she develops her understanding of the intricacies of human emotion, I think, are what I think that's what is very appealing about her stories. She also is a writer who resonated with me at a particular time in my life because she was, like me, writing about the lives of girls and women. One of her uh, key collections is called Lives of Girls and Women. Um, imperative to write from a woman's point of view and about women's lives was was very significant for me um, when I was, you know, in my 30s and starting to write books. In a way, it was cataclysmic for me, the discovery of feminism, I I had no knowledge, really, or insight, and I hadn't noticed the absence of women's voices in the Irish literary scene. For instance, I loved the Gus Martin anthology, Exploring English, but I would never have noticed as 14 or 15 year old that there were only two women in that anthology, which I noticed with some dismay when it came out again a couple of years ago. Um, I never noticed when I was studying English in UCD for three years that in the whole of that time that we read about three women writers, just the usual suspects, Emily Dickinson, Jane Austen and Emily Bronte, and that everything else that we read was written by a man. Um, I had a total blind spot. It didn't deter me from wanting to be a writer. I didn't know I had no role models, whatever. But um, in the mid 1980s, I'd finished my PhD. I was married. I had two babies and I was then focusing on being a writer and I had a full time job as well. But I, I was introduced to something called the Women's Studies Forum in UCD, a group of women led by Alva Smith, who, who organised events, readings and lectures about history and literature and so on. And that was almost the first time I became aware of this phenomenon that all great Irish literature had been written by men and that um, there was a distinct absence of one of the genders in the literary scene. That gave me gave me a reason for if I was looking for one, which I think I was, because in a way it's not enough just to want to be a writer it's good to know what it is you want to write about, to have a, a, an impetus, a, a cause. It gave me a cause. I'm not writing polemically or anything, but I realised then I am a woman, I can write and there is a gap to be filled and I will now write about women's lives. And that's what I did for quite a long time. So that was crucially important to me. And that, that first collection... Blood and Water was published by, by Attic Press, which pioneered a lot of new writing by women in the 80s. And when you look back, I mean, it, it, it's been a huge journey since then. When you look at the writing scene in Ireland now and uh, the number of wonderful writers emerging, a very, very different publishing scene, for example. It was very quiet, I'd say, when I started off writing my short stories. We had New Art Writing and David Marks, and that was an absolutely fantastic outlet. But the the book publishing scene was hardly there by comparison with now when, um, you know, there's a vibrant published scene. There are an awful lot of young people writing and trying to get their books out and so on and so forth. So when I look back to my 20s, it seems to me retrospectively kind of lazy I was about getting my first book out because I was 
well on in my 30s before that actually happened, even though, you know, I've been talking about it since I was about eight. (laughs) Why was I like that? Because it just wasn't happening. Nobody was doing it. I didn't know anybody who was writing books or whatever, whereas now they seem to be all over the place, really. Then you had, I suppose, this gradual movement which escalated, I guess, um, through the late 70s and the 80s. And um, Poolbeg Press came on the scene and started publishing the first women writers, I think, actually, Emma Cook and Maeve Kelly and Deesh Daly and people like that. And then um, Arlen House, uh, a, a women's press, started and began to focus exclusively on women, published some books kind of about women, like I think Irish Women, Legacy and Achievement. My consciousness was so low and under the ground that it was my husband-to-be, Boo Almquist. He, he gave me that book probably kind of thinking, gosh, this one, she's she really is so lacking in um, drive and ambition or feminism that I have to um, show her that that there is something there and um, it certainly uh, encouraged women to try and to to keep writing a lot of it seems it does seem to me though that there is a phenomenon that women start writing and don't go on around that time 70s 80s there were women like Emma Cook who just had three or four really interesting books out and similarly Maeve Kelly and there are other examples of that as well but that has all changed a lot and it seems to be an even playing field certainly at the start of things you might think all right as life goes on (laughs) all the big important writers still seem to be predominantly male and I, I, I don't know why that is it's a, it's 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 a very complex issue to, area to get into, and what are the women writing, and what are the men writing, and so on and so forth. Through your work on the MA course in UCD, I know you've you've, you've taught creative writing at different times over the years in different places, but for the last five years or so, you've, you've been committed to the the course in UCD, and I presume that that you really get a sense of this new generation who are uh, who are probably very different to how you were, you know, thirty years ago. I'm not sure if they're that different in the way they approach their writing and so on. I mean, the big difference is, of course, that they are taking formal courses in creative writing, learning their craft in a a much more formal way than was possible for me. And they're also in um, a more vibrant and but also more competitive environment. That's the to some extent the downside of it as far as they're concerned, because um, I guess in Ireland there were always people who wanted to write. But I'd say when I started there weren't that many of them and there certainly weren't that many of the girls doing it, <laughs> of women. So it's great, it's vibrant, it's exciting now. There are loads of competitions and things like that, but there are an awful lot of people writing out there and it'll be really interesting to see how it all develops over the next 20 years or so. I think writing is going to get better and better as a result of this. It's interesting as well to see a, a new publishing house like Tramp Press mm. emerge with a, 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 another energy and somehow it's, it seems shaking up what may have been a complacency that had set in somewhere along the way. That's a very good point, complacency. Yeah, I, th- I think actually in the David Marks days of New Irish writing, there was that kind of uh, vibrancy and, hey, something new has been created. And then we had the women's voices and so on. There was an experimentalism and, uh, you know, receptiveness to it at that time. And then maybe over the last 20 years or so, it has all gone a bit smooth a sort of more accessible middle of the road type of fiction has predominated really in Irish letters. And I think that now that is being shaken up again. I think a phenomenon, though, of Irish letters of the literary world at the moment is that it's much more tolerant of many different kinds of writing. Um, It had to be the modernist short story. It had to be the Chekhovian short story. It had to, you know, the Chekhovian Joyce Epiphany sort of short story that that I write and that I like writing, except for my satiric ones, of course, which don't fall into that pattern at all. But now 
I see in the short story, all kinds of short stories, it doesn't have to conform to that at all. You can have strong plot driven, twist in the tail sort of short story, which we would have scorned and, and which wouldn't have been published by David, actually. <laughs> it's out there. And I kind of realise, yeah, those stories are just as hard to write as the Epiphanic short stories, maybe harder even. It's it's hard to get a good twist in the tale. And what's wrong with it? Roddy Doyle's short story, the one I write about in the essay in folk, Folklore and Irish Literature, The Pram, is a fantastic example of a story that doesn't conform to any rules at all. I mean, I've never read anything like it, but it's great. And that can happen now. And I think that seems to reflect the democratisation of literature, which I think is really, really happening. In a recent book, Lines of Vision, Irish Writers on Art, published by the National Gallery, you chose a painting by Gerald Dillon, mm-hmm. uh, a jumping off point for a piece of writing. Is it? Tell us a little bit about the painting, first of all, and, and then you might read a little from what you wrote. I selected Gerald Dillon's Nano's Dream Castle. It's a imaginative, experimental sort of painting. It seems to be a dream. And I was delighted to get the invitation to take part in this fantastic project, which resulted in a really beautiful book, Lines of Vision. And I wanted to take a painting by a woman to respond to. Um, I have in the past responded to paintings by Alice Marr in particular, but there are hardly any paintings by women in the National Gallery. So I took Nano's Dream Castle, which uh, is a portrait of a woman painter, Nano Reed, and is a very imaginative dreamscape incorporating some kind of motifs that occur frequently in in my dreams. I keep I'm very interested in dreams. I write down my dreams. And of course, the castle is a fairy tale motif and so on. So it seemed to include elements which spoke to me. A dream catalogue. In my garden, I stand like a blade of grass. I cook a stew of shadows in a beechwood casserole. Cabbage light as butterflies, nettle breezes. Silver water from a spring, my beverage. My fingers are the bristles of a bush that canter through a canvas meadow. For years I've recorded my dreams, insofar as the flimsy net, my only tool, can catch swallows as they fly into the clouds, or fishes darting under the slimy rock called I Forget. These are my themes. Rivers breaking banks, tsunamis overwhelming, missing buses, friends vanishing round corners like eager rabbits finding fast their burrows. Of course, a certain share of sexual stuff involving ancient friends and complete strangers. Then houses like mushrooms in autumn fields, they crop up every night. My dreams enjoy a permanent building boom. In my unconscious, there are 10,000 mansions, also cottages and bungalows, villas, palaces and castle upon castle. The Penn Award for Lifetime's Achievement, you know, there you are in the company of the likes of Edna O'Brien and John McGaffin and Brian Friel. Does that mean a lot to you? And, and, and in a way, does it, not that it needs vindication, but in some way, does it seem to vindicate your work within, within the writing community? To me, it is as if I had won the Nobel Prize. It just means a huge amount to me. I feel very honoured and very grateful and I was very surprised but yeah it's great to get that sort of acknowledgement from your peers and to be in that company absolutely Congratulations on the Penn Award and thanks so much for talking to us Writer Eilish Nguivna there and she receives that Penn Lifetime Achievement Award later this week Next week, architects Sheila O'Donnell and John Toomey on their work and vision. Join us next Monday night. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleanna Leon Lewin.